Chapter 13 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell. Chapter 13. Little Rock, October 1863. Granted a furlough. Chaplain B.B. B. Hamilton. The journey on furlough from Little Rock to Jersey County, Illinois. Returned to regiment November 1863. About the middle of October, the regiment shifted its campground from Huntersville to an open space on the west side of the river, near the state penitentiary, where we remained all the ensuing winter. Soon after this change of camp, it was reported among us that one man from each company would soon be granted a thirty-day furlough. Prior to this, while in Tennessee, there had been a very few furloughs granted in exceptional cases, which were all the indulgences of that kind the regiment had so far received. I made no request to be the favored man of our company in this matter, but one day Captain Keeley told me that he had decided that I should be the furloughed man from Company D, and could make my arrangements accordingly. By this time I had so far recovered from my rheumatism that I could walk around with the aid of a cane, but was very shaky on foot, and any sudden shock or jar would make me flinch with pain. I wondered how I should be able to get from the camp to the railroad depot on the other side of the river with my knapsack, haversack, and canteen and their necessary contents, for I was utterly unable to carry them. I happened to mention this problem to the chaplain of the regiment, B. B. Hamilton. He was an old and valued friend of my parents, and as he had lived only a few miles from our home, I knew him quite well before the war, and had heard him preach many a time. He was of the Baptist denomination, and my parents were of the same religious faith. At this time he was still what I would call a young man, being only about forty years old. My father's given name was Jeremiah, and the chaplain, most invariably, when speaking to me, would, in a grave, deliberate manner, address me as son of Jeremiah. When I mentioned to him my perplexity above indicated, he responded, Son of Jeremiah, let not your heart be troubled. The Lord will provide. Knowing that what he said could be depended upon, I asked no questions. The precious document, giving me thirty days' leave of absence, was delivered to me in due time, and our little squad arranged to start on the next train, and which would leave Little Rock for Duval's Bluff early the following day. I had my breakfast betimes the next morning, and was sitting on the ground in front of my tent with my traps by me when Chaplain Hamilton came riding up on his horse. He dismounted and saying to me, Son of Jeremiah, the Lord has provided, thereupon helped me on his horse and we started for the depot, the chaplain walking by my side. We crossed the Arkansas on a sort of improvised army bridge and were approaching the depot when a locomotive on the track nearby began to let off steam. The horse evidently was not accustomed to that. He gave a frantic snort and began to prance and rear. 
For a second or so I was in an agony of apprehension. I was encumbered with my knapsack and other things, was weak and feeble, and no horseman anyhow, and knew that if I should be violently thrown to the ground, it would just about break me all to pieces, and my furlough would end then and there. But it is likely that the chaplain may have apprehended the horse's conduct. At any rate, he was on the alert. With one bound, he was in front of the frightened animal, holding him firmly by the bridle bits, and had him under control at once. And about the same time, the engine stopped its noise, and the trouble was over. The cars destined for Duval's Bluff were on the track, and the chaplain and some of our furlough party, who had already arrived, helped me on the train. Of course, there were no passenger coaches, just box and gravel cars, and I seated myself on the floor of one of the latter. I gratefully thanked the chaplain for his kindness. He said a few pleasant words, gave me a kind message for the folks at home, wished me a safe and pleasant trip, and then rode away. This is probably a fitting place to pay a brief tribute to the memory of Chaplain Hamilton, so I will proceed to do so. The first chaplain of the regiment was a minister named Edward Rutledge. He was appointed May 16, 1862, and resigned September 3rd of the same year. I do not remember of his ever officiating often in the capacity of chaplain. I recall just one occasion when he preached to us, and that was under somewhat peculiar circumstances. He came to the regiment when we were in camp at Owl Creek, Tennessee, and soon after his arrival there read one Sunday evening at dress parade an order in substance and effect as follows, that at a designated time on the following morning the men would assemble on their respective company parade grounds wearing their sidearms, which included waist and shoulder belts, cartridge box, cap pouch, and bayonet, and under the command of a commissioned officer, each company would march to the grove where the chaplain would hold religious services. Well, I didn't like that order one bit, and the great majority of the boys felt the same way. The idea of having to attend church under compulsion seemed to me to infringe on our constitutional rights as free-born American citizens that while it might have been a thing to be endured in the days described in Fox's Book of Martyrs, nevertheless it wasn't exactly fair right now. But orders must be obeyed, so we all turned out with the prescribed sidearms, and like the young oysters that were inveigled by the walrus and the carpenter, our clothes were brushed, our faces washed, our shoes were clean and neat. But it is much to be feared that the chaplain's discourse didn't do anybody a bit of good. For my part, I don't now remember a word, not even the text. The order aforesaid gave so much dissatisfaction to the rank and file, and perhaps to some of the line officers also, that it was never repeated, and thereafter attendance on the chaplain's preaching was a matter left to each man's pleasure and discretion. Judging only from what came under my personal notice, I don't think that much good was ever accomplished by chaplains in the Western Army as regards matters of a purely theological nature. As someone has said somewhere, Army service in time of war is D-D hard on religion.
but in practical everyday matters chaplains had ample opportunities for doing and did a great deal of good they held the rank and wore the uniform of a captain and while they had no military command over the men they were nevertheless so far as i ever saw always treated by the soldiers with the most kind and respectful consideration to fill the vacancy caused by the resignation of rutledge b b hamilton was commissioned chaplain on october thirtieth eighteen sixty two and came to us about that date he had been active in the ministry at home for many years and during that time had preached in jersey green and the adjoining counties so he was personally known to many of the officers and men he was a man of good sound common sense an excellent judge of human nature and endowed with a dry quaint sort of humor that was delightful when talking with intimate friends he was prone at times to drop into an oriental style of conversation well garnished with sayings and illustrations from the bible i don't remember now of his preaching to us very often and when he did he was tactful in selecting a time when the conditions were all favorable in his discourses he ignored all questions of theology such as faith free will foreordination the final perseverance of the saints and such like and got right down to matters involved in our everyday life he would admonish us to be careful about our health to avoid excesses of any kind that might be injurious to us in that respect and above all things to be faithful and brave soldiers and conduct ourselves in such a manner that our army record would be an honor to us and a source of pride and satisfaction to our parents and friends at home in camp or on the march he was a most useful and industrious man he would visit the sick write letters for them and in general look after their needs in countless ways he wrote a fine, neat, legible hand, and rendered much assistance to many of the line officers in making out the muster and payrolls of their respective companies, and in attending to other matters connected with the company records or official correspondence. And when the regiment had fighting to do, or a prospect of any, Chaplain Hamilton was always at the front. In the affair at Salem Cemetery, Hez Giberson of Company G was knocked down and rendered insensible for a short time by the nearby explosion of a shell. Hamilton ran to him, picked him up, and, taking him by the arm, marched him to the rear, while shells were bursting all around us. I saw them as they walked by, Giberson white as a sheet, staggering, and evidently deathly sick. But the chaplain clung to him, kept him on his feet, and ultimately turned him over to the surgeon. The spring of 1865 found the regiment at Franklin, Tennessee. The war was then practically over in that region, and any organized armies of the Confederates were hundreds of miles away. Hamilton's health had become greatly impaired, and in view of all these conditions he concluded to resign, and did so, on March 3, 1865, and thereupon returned to his old home in Illinois. The vacancy caused by his resignation was never filled, and thereafter we had no religious services in the regiment except on two or three occasions rendered by volunteers whose names I have forgotten. After leaving the army, Chaplain Hamilton led a life of activity and usefulness until incapacitated by his final illness. 
He died at Upper Alton, Illinois, on November 11, 1894, at the age of nearly 73 years, respected and loved by all who knew him. He was a good, patriotic, brave man. I never saw him but once after he left the army, but we kept up a fraternal correspondence with each other as long as he lived. I will now return to the little squad of furloughed 61ers that was left a while ago on the freight cars at Little Rock. The train pulled out early in the day for Duval's Bluff, where we arrived about noon. We at once made our way to the boat landing, and I simply am unable to describe our disappointment when we found no steamboats there. After making careful inquiry, we were unable to get any reliable information in regard to the time of the arrival of any from below. It might be the next hour, or maybe not for several days. There was nothing to do but just bivouac there by the river bank and wait. And there we waited for two long days of our precious thirty and were getting fairly desperate when one afternoon the scream of a whistle was heard and soon the leading boat of a small fleet poked its nose around the bend about half a mile below, and we sprang to our feet, waved our caps, and yelled. We ascertained that the boats would start on the return trip to the mouth of White River as soon as they unloaded their army freight. This was accomplished by the next morning. We boarded the first one ready to start, a small stern wheeler, and some time on the second day thereafter arrived at the mouth of White River. There we landed on the right bank of the Mississippi, and later boarded a big side-wheeler destined for Cairo, which stopped to take us on. When it rounded in for that purpose, the members of our little squad were quite nervous, and there was a rush on the principle of every fellow for himself. I was hobbling along with my traps as best I could, when in going down the river bank, which was high and steep, in some way I stumbled and fell, and rolled clear to the bottom and just lay there helpless. There was one of our party of the name of John Powell, of Company G, a young fellow about twenty-two or twenty-three years old. He was not tall, only about five feet and eight or nine inches, but was remarkably broad across the shoulders and chest and had the reputation of being the strongest man in the regiment. He happened to see the accident that had befallen me, and ran to me, picked me up in his arms with my stuff, the same as if I had been a baby, and toted me on the boat. He hunted up a cozy corner on the leeward side, set me down carefully, and then said, Now you d-d little cuss, I guess you won't fall down here and all the balance of the trip, until our respective routes diverged, he looked after me the same as if I had been his brother. He was a splendid, big-hearted fellow. While ascending the Mississippi, the weather was cloudy and foggy, the boat tied up at nights, and our progress generally was tantalizingly slow. We arrived at Cairo on the afternoon of October 26th. It was a raw, chilly autumn day, a drizzling rain was falling, and everything looked uncomfortable and wretched. We went to the depot of the Illinois Central Railroad, and on inquiry learned that our train would not leave until about nine o'clock that night, so apparently there was nothing to do but sit down and wait. My thoughts were soon dwelling on the first time I saw Cairo, 
that bright, sunny afternoon in the latter part of March, 1862. I was then in superb health and buoyant spirits, and inspired by radiant hopes and glowing anticipations. Only a little over a year and a half had elapsed, and I was now at the old town again, but this time in broken health and hobbling about on a stick. But it soon occurred to me that many of my comrades had met a still more unfortunate fate, and by this comparison method I presently got in a more cheerful frame of mind. And something happened to come to pass that materially aided that consummation. Some of our party, who had been scouting around the town, returned with the intelligence that they had found a place called the Soldier's Home, where all transient soldiers were furnished food and shelter, without money and without price. This was most welcome news, for our rations were practically exhausted, and our money supply was so meager that economy was a necessity. It was nearing supper time, so we started at once for the home in hopes of getting a square meal. On reaching the place, we found already formed a long queue of hungry soldiers in two ranks, extending from the door away out into the street. We took our stand at the end of the line and waited patiently. The building was a long, low frame structure of a barrack-like style and a very unpretentious appearance. But as we found out soon, the inside was better. In due time, the door was opened and we all filed in. The room was well lighted and warm and long rows of rough tables extended clear across with benches for seats. And, oh, what a splendid supper we had! Strong hot coffee, soft bread, cold-boiled beef, molasses, stewed dried apples, and even cucumber pickles. Supper over, we went back to the depot, all feeling better, and I've had a warm spot in my heart for the old town of Cairo ever since. But it certainly did look hard at this time. Its population, at the beginning of the war, was only a little over two thousand. The houses were small and dilapidated, and everything was dirty, muddy, slushy, and disagreeable in general. In October 1914, I happened to be in Cairo again, and spent several hours there, roaming around and looking at the town. The lapse of half a century had wrought a wonderful change. Its population was now something over 15,000, the streets were well paved and brilliantly lighted, and long blocks of tall, substantial buildings had superseded the unsightly shacks of the days of the Civil War. But on this occasion I found no vestige of our soldiers' home, nor was any person of whom inquiry was made able to give me the slightest information as to where it had stood. The only thing I saw in the town or that vicinity that looked natural was the Ohio River, and even its placid appearance was greatly marred by a stupendous railroad bridge, over which trains of cars were thundering every hour in the day. But the river itself was flowing on in serene majesty, as it had been from the time the morning stars sang together, and as it will continue to flow until this planet goes out of business. We left Cairo on the cars on the night of October 26th, and for the first time in our military service we rode in passenger coaches, which was another piece of evidence that once more we were in that part of the world that we uniformly spoke of as God's country. 
I remember an incident that occurred during our ride that night that gave us all the benefit of a hearty laugh. There was, and is yet, a station on the Illinois Central in Jackson County, Illinois, by the name of Maconda. It was some time after midnight when we neared this station. The boys were sprawled out on their seats and trying to doze. The engine gave the usual loud whistle to announce a stop. The front door of our coach was thrown open, and a brakeman with a strong Hiberian accent called out in thunder tones what sounded exactly like my candy as here written and with the accent on the first syllable there were several soldiers in the coach who were not of our party also going home on furlough and one of these a big fellow with a heavy black beard reared up and yelled back at the brakeman well who the hell said it wasn't your candy and the boys all roared Many years later, I passed through that town on the cars, and the brakeman said, My candy, as of yore. I felt a devilish impulse to make the same response the soldier did on that October night in 1863. But the war was over. No comrades were on hand to back me, so I prudently refrained. At Sandoval, the most of our party transferred to the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad, as it was called then, and went to St. Louis reaching there on the afternoon of October 27th. Here, all except myself, left on the Chicago, Alton, and St. Louis Railroad for different points thereon, and from which they could make their way to their respective homes. There was no railroad running through Jersey County at this time, except a bit of the last-named road about a mile in length across the southeast corner of the county, and the railroad station nearest my home was 20 miles away so I had to resort to some other mode of travel. I went down to the wharf and boarded a little Illinois River steamboat, the Post Boy, which would start north that night, paid my fare to Grafton at the mouth of the Illinois River, arranged with a clerk to wake me at that place, and then turned in. But the clerk did not have to bother on my account. I was restless, slept but little, kept a close lookout, and when the whistle blew for Grafton, I was up and on deck in about a minute. The boat rounded in at the landing and threw out a plank for my benefit, the lone passenger for Grafton. Two big burly deckhands, rough-looking bearded men, took me by the arm, one on each side, and carefully and kindly helped me ashore. I have often thought of that little incident. In those days a river deckhand was not a saint by any means. As a rule he was a coarse, turbulent, and very profane man. But these two fellows saw that I was a little, broken-down boy soldier, painfully hobbling along on a stick, and they took hold of me with their strong, brawny hands and helped me off the boat with as much kindness and gentleness as if I had been the finest lady in the land. I was now only five miles from home and proposed to make the balance of my journey on foot. I climbed up to the top of the river bank and thence made my way to the main and only street the little town then possessed, and took the middle of the road. It was perhaps four or five o'clock in the morning, a quiet, starlit night, and the people of the village were all apparently yet wrapped in slumber. No signs of life were visible, except occasionally a dog would run out in a front yard and bark at me. The main road from Grafton at that time, and which passed near my home, 
wound along the river bottom a short distance, and then, for a mile or more, ascended some high hills or bluffs north of the town. The ascent of these bluffs was steep, and hence the walking was fatiguing, and several times before reaching the summit, where the road stretched away over a long, high ridge, I had to sit down and rest. The quails were now calling all around me, and the chickens were crowing for day at the farmhouses, and their notes sounded so much like home. After attaining the crest, the walking was easier, and I slowly plodded on, rejoicing in the sight of the many familiar objects that appeared on every hand. About a mile or so from home, I left the main highway and followed a country road that led to our house, where I at last arrived about nine o'clock. I had not written to my parents to advise them of my coming, for it would not have been judicious, in mere expectation of a furlough, to excite hopes that might be disappointed. And after it was issued and delivered to me, there was no use in writing, for I would reach home as soon as the letter. So my father and mother and the rest of the family were all taken completely by surprise when I quietly walked into the yard of the old home. I pass over any detailed account of our meeting. We, like others of that time and locality, were a simple backwoods people, with nothing in the nature of gush or effervescence in our dispositions. I know I was glad to see my parents and the rest, and they were all unmistakably glad to see me, and we manifested our feelings in a natural, homely way, and without any display whatever of extravagant emotions. Greetings being over, about the first inquiry was whether I had yet had any breakfast, and my answer being in the negative, a splendid old-time breakfast was promptly prepared. But my mother was keenly disappointed at my utter lack of appetite. I just couldn't eat hardly a bit, and invented some sort of an excuse, and said I'd do better in the future. But somehow right then I wasn't hungry, which was true. However, this instance of involuntary abstinence was fully made up for later. While on my furlough, I went with my father in the farm wagon, occasionally to Grafton and Jerseyville, and even once to Alton, twenty miles away. But the greater part of the time we spent at the farm and around the old home and in the society of the family. I reckon I rambled over every acre of the farm, and besides took long walks in the woods of the adjacent country for miles around. The big, gushing Samson Spring, about half a mile from home, was a spot associated with many happy recollections. I would go there, lie flat on the ground, and take a copious drink of the pure, delicious water, then stroll through the woods down Samson Branch to its confluence with Otter Creek, thence down the creek to the twin springs that burst out at the base of a ridge on our farm, just a few feet below a big sugar maple. From here on to the ruins of the old gristmill my father operated in the latter forties, and then still further down the creek to the ancient gristmill, then still standing, of the old pioneer Hiram White. Here I would cross to the south bank of the creek and make my way home up through limestone or the sugar hollow. From my earliest youth I always loved to ramble in the woods, and somehow these around the old home now looked dearer and more beautiful to me than they ever had before. The last time I ever saw my boyhood home 
was in August 1894. It had passed into the hands of strangers and didn't look natural, and all the old-time natural conditions in that locality were greatly changed. The flow of water from Samson Spring was much smaller than what it had been in the old days, and only a few rods below the spring it sank into the ground and disappeared. The big, shady pools along Samson Branch where I had gone swimming when a boy, and from which I had caught many a string of perch and silver sides, were now dry, rocky holes in the ground, and the branch in general was dry as a bone, and Otter Creek, which at different places where it ran through our farm, had once contained long reaches of water six feet deep and over, had now shrunk to a sickly rivulet that one could step across almost anywhere in that vicinity, and the grand primeval forest, which up to about the close of the war, at least, had practically covered the country for many miles in the vicinity of my old home, had now all been cut down and destroyed, and the naked surface of the earth was baking in the rays of the sun. It is my opinion, and it is stated for whatever it may be worth, that the wholesale destruction of the forests in that region had much to do with the drying up of the streams. But it is time to return to the boy on furlough. Shortly before leaving Little Rock for home, Captain Keeley had confidentially informed me that if the military situation in Arkansas continued quiet, it would be all right for me, before my furlough expired, to procure what would effect a short extension thereof, and he explained to me the modus operandi. Including the unavoidable delays, over a third of my thirty days had been consumed in making the trip home, and the return journey would doubtless require about the same time. I therefore thought it would be justifiable to obtain an extension if possible. My health was rapidly growing better, the rheumatism was nearly gone, but there was still room for improvement. I had closely read the newspapers in order to keep posted on the military status in the vicinity of Little Rock, and had learned from them that the troops were building winter quarters, and that in general all was quiet along the Arkansas. So on November 9th I went to Dr. J. H. Hesser, a respectable physician in Otterville, told him my business, and said that if his judgment would warrant it, I would be glad to obtain from him a certificate that would operate to extend my furlough for twenty days. He looked at me, asked a few questions, and then wrote and gave me a brief paper, which set forth in substance that, in his opinion, as a physician, I would not be able for duty sooner than December 5th, 1863, that being a date twenty days subsequent to the expiration of my furlough. I paid Dr. Hesser nothing for the certificate for he did not ask it, but said that he gave it to me as a warranted act of kindness to a deserving soldier. In September of the following year, Dr. Hesser enlisted in Company C of our regiment as a recruit, and about all the time he was with us he acted as hospital steward of the regiment, which position he filled ably and satisfactorily. But I did not avail myself of all of my aforesaid extension, I knew it would be better to report at company headquarters before its expiration than after, so my arrangements were made to start back on November 16th. Some hours before sunrise that morning, I bade good-bye to mother and the children, and father and I pulled out in the farm wagon for our nearest railroad station, which was Alton, and, as heretofore stated, twenty miles away. 
where we arrived in ample time for my train. We drove into a back street and unhitched the team, the faithful old mules Bill and Tom, tied them to the wagon and fed them, and then walked to the depot. The train came in due season and stopped opposite the depot platform, where Father and I were standing. We faced each other, and I said, "'Good-bye, Father.' He responded, "'Good-bye, Leander. Take care of yourself.' We shook hands. Then he instantly turned and walked away, and I boarded the train. That was all there was to it. And yet we both knew more in regard to the dangers and perils that environ the life of a soldier in time of war than we did on the occasion of the parting at Jerseyville nearly two years ago. Hence we fully realized that this farewell might be the last. Nor did this manner spring from indifference or lack of sensibility. It was simply the way of the plain, unlettered, backwoods people of those days. Nearly thirty-five years later the whirligig of time evolved an incident which clearly brought home to me a vivid idea of what must have been my father's feelings on this occasion. The Spanish-American War began in the latter part of April, 1898, and on the 30th of that month, Hubert, my oldest son, then a lad not quite nineteen years old, enlisted in Company A of the 22nd Kansas Infantry, a regiment raised for service in that war. On May 28th, the regiment was sent to Washington, D.C., and was stationed at Camp Alger, near the city. In the early part of August, it appeared that there was a strong probability that the regiment, with others at Washington, would soon be sent to Cuba or Puerto Rico. I knew that meant fighting, to say nothing of the camp diseases liable to prevail in that latitude at that season of the year. So my wife and I concluded to go to Washington and have a little visit with Hubert before he left for the seat of war. We arrived at the capital on August 5th, and found the regiment then in camp near the little village of Clifton, Virginia, about twenty-six miles southwest of Washington. We had a brief but very enjoyable visit with Hubert, who was given a pass and stayed a few days with us in the city. But the time soon came for us to separate, and on the day of our departure for home, Hubert went with us to the depot of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, where his mother and I bade him good-bye. Then there came to me so forcibly the recollection of that parting with my father at the Alton Depot in November 1863, and for the first time I think I fully appreciated what must have been his feelings on that occasion. But, referring to the Washington incident, it so happened that on the day my wife and I left that city for home, or quite soon thereafter, it was officially announced that a suspension of hostilities had been agreed on between Spain and the United States. This ended the war, and consequently Hubert's regiment was not sent to the Spanish islands. I will now resume my own story. My route from Alton and method of conveyance on returning to the regiment were the same, with one or two slight variations as those in going home, and the return trip was uneventful. But there were no delays, the boat ran day and night, and the journey was made in remarkably quick time. I arrived at Little Rock on the evening of November 20th, only five days over my furlough, and with a twenty-day extension to show for that. Reported promptly to Captain Keeley and delivered to him the certificate given me by Dr. Hesser, 
Keeley pronounced the paper satisfactory, and further said it would have been all right if I had taken the benefit of the entire twenty days. However, it seemed to me that he really was pleased to see that I had not done so, but hurried back fifteen days ahead of time. After a brief conversation with him about the folks at home and matters and things there in general, he treated me to a most agreeable surprise. He stepped to the company office desk and took therefrom a folded paper, which he handed to me with the remark, There, Stillwell, is something I think will please you. I unfolded and glanced at it, and saw that it was a non-commissioned officer's warrant signed by Major Grass as commanding officer of the regiment and countersigned by Lieutenant A. C. Haskins as adjutant, appointing me first sergeant of Company D. The warrant was dated November 4th, but recited that the appointment took effect from September 1st preceding. As before stated, Enoch Wallace was our original first sergeant, and as he was promoted to second lieutenant on September 3rd, 1863, his advancement left his old position vacant, and his mantle had now fallen on me. I was deeply gratified with this appointment, and really was not expecting it, as there were two other duty sergeants who outranked me, and in appointing me I was promoted over their heads. However, they took it in good part and remained my friends as they always had been. And the plain truth is, too, which may have reconciled these sergeants somewhat, the position of first or orderly sergeant, as we usually called it, was not an enviable one by any means. His duties were incessant, involving responsibility, and frequently were very trying. He had to be right with his company every hour of the day, and it was not prudent for him to absent himself from camp for even ten minutes without the consent of his company commander and temporarily appointing a duty sergeant to act in his place while away. Among his multifarious duties may be mentioned the following, calling the roll of the company morning and evening, and at such other hours as might be required, attending sick calls with the sick, and carefully making note of those excused from duty by the surgeon, making out and signing the company morning report, procuring the signature of the company commander thereto, and then delivering it to the adjutant, forming the company on its parade ground for dress parade, drills, marches, and the like, making the details of the men required from his company for the various kinds of guard and fatigue duty, drawing rations for the company, and distributing them among the various messes, seeing to it that the company grounds, when in camp, were properly policed every morning, and just scores of little matters of detail that were occurring all the time. It was a very embarrassing incident when sometimes a boy, who was a good soldier, was, without permission, absent at roll call. He might have strolled up town or to a neighboring camp to see an old-time friend, and stayed too long. On such occurrences I would, as a general rule, pass rapidly from his name to the next, and just report the boy present, and later talk to him privately and tell him not to let it happen again. It is true sometimes an aggravated case occurred, when in order to maintain discipline, a different course had to be pursued, but not often. Speaking generally, I will say that it was bad policy for the orderly to be running to the captain about every little trouble or grievance. The thing for him to do was to take the responsibility and act on his own judgment, and depend on the captain to back him, as he almost invariably would, 
if the affair came to a showdown. Beginning as far back as the summer of 1862, I had frequently temporarily acted as orderly sergeant for weeks at a time, and so possessed a fair amount of experience when I entered on the duties of the position under a permanent appointment. But my long, solitary rambles out in the woods beyond the lines were at an end, and that was a matter of more regret to me than anything else connected with the office of orderly sergeant. While on this topic, I will remark that it always seemed to me that the men who had the softest snaps of any in a regiment of infantry were the lieutenants of the respective companies. The first lieutenant had no company cares or responsibilities whatever, unless the captain was absent or sick in quarters, and the second lieutenant was likewise exempt, unless the captain and first lieutenant were both absent or sick. Of course, there were duties that devolved on the lieutenants from time to time, such as drilling the men, serving as officer of the guard, and other matters, but when those jobs were done, they could just go and play without a particle of care or anxiety about the services of the morrow. End of chapter 13